Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. I am Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. We hope that things are going so well out there for you in listener land, because things are going pretty good here in speaker land. It's true. We're uh, we're doing a lot of speaking, a lot of storytelling, or story viewing. If I remember correctly, speaker land was the loudest Super Mario World. Oh, (laughs) a good memory. I don't remember that. And listener land was the most informed Super Mario World. (laughs) child of the 90s <laughs> child of the 90s indeed anyway today uh we are going back into a foray into um standalone films and movies because uh there was one that as soon as i had this idea for this podcast i was like oh this movie just really was riveting from beginning to end for me and that's um we're gonna do a 2007 film michael clayton and if you Google this film and read reviews, one of the first reveal, reviews that will come up is the last adult movie that Hollywood did. <laughs> oh, really? The last adult movie? The last adult movie did that Hollywood say- did. Because it was talking about how Hollywood has had to transform its storytelling methodology with the advent of like television serial series that are becoming so good. And what a movie used to be, TV can do better now. But how this movie was actually thoughtful and didn't provide that much action or anything like that, or even too much suspense, although it did provi- provide some suspense. But it was really just a thoughtful, existential look into this guy's headspace and the people around him. Yeah. Well, I would say, too, that this movie, not only is there not a wasted scene, there isn't a wasted line or even a wasted word. Like, every single syllable of this story is relevant at some point in the plot. Like the payoff for every scene is huge, as great as I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, there's uh, everything is connected. It's it's very well done kind of taking the plot and weaving it together from beginning to end and end to beginning. It also jumps around in time, which is uh, always a fun little trick you can play in the movies. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be seen just on a cinematic side of how awesome this mm-hmm. movie is. So yeah, um, this is a 2007 film written and directed, I believe, by Tony Gilroy, starring George Clooney as the titular Michael Clayton, which I think, to me, this has got to be his greatest dramatic role ever. I think he's been in some comedic roles that I treasure just as highly, such as Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But for pure drama and suspense, I've never seen him do better. And I am no anti-Clooney. I think he's a great actor, but his, he is so tight 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 in this movie and then also stars starring in this film is uh, tilda swinton and she actually won the oscar for her role in this film for best supporting actress and she is also 
incredible. And uh, Tom Wilkinson is also in this movie. And then the only other actor that I kind of recognize is a guy named Sidney Pollock, who plays one of Michael Clayton's bosses, who's around uh, quite a bit in the movie. But not, not a major role, I wouldn't say. No. I think the biggest reason that I thought, okay, this is a perfect movie for this podcast, is that throughout the whole movie, basically... Uh, Michael Clayton is under so much stress. It's almost you, like you lose track of how many things are kind of unraveling in his life. Yeah, basically, his life is definitely, by every metric, falling apart. And yet the whole time, he stays calm. He's got almost no scenes where he's in an elevated emotional state. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good you point. You know, like, yeah. it's just so... I mean, I, I have a few examples we'll talk about, but, like, that's the genesis of this for me. It was like, wow, like, he is stressed out about everything. Well, maybe he... But that's probably why he's such a good fixer. He's so good for this role that he's been placed in by yeah. his corporate masters so, or whatever. big time spoilers, again, obviously. <laughs> We're going to spoil this whole movie for you, so if you haven't seen it, go watch it first. I think it'll be very rewarding. But basic plot summary, Michael Clayton, George Clooney's character, plays this kind of fixer lawyer for a pretty big law firm in New York. And he is the cleanup guy. He's kind of there to clean up all of these, the underbelly cases of this, like it's a massive law firm. They have hundreds of lawyers, it sounds like. And Arthur, Tom Wilkinson's character, is kind of one of the senior lawyers, and he is defending... He's the lead. No, well, he's the lead defense lawyer. Yeah, yeah lead defense, defense lawyer. lawyer for this massive company called U North, which is where Tilda Swinton comes in. She's, I think she's the, she's the in-house counsel. She's in-house counsel for U North, so she's their lawyer. Yeah, so like it, she kind of describes it in the movie, but like an in-house counsel won't have the expertise on all the stuff that these big law firms will have. So she'll just kind of be the one that orchestrates the whole thing, but. It's kind of run by these bigger firms with the expertise that she doesn't necessarily have. and so, But she's like the liaison between yeah, the exactly. company and the lawyers. And you North, this company is getting uh, litigated by all these private citizens in the Midwest for soil tampering. They're basically like an earth company and an ecosystem company. It's a, it's like a kind of fertilizer, but a specialized fertilizer, but it is causing cancer. Yeah. And so... As the movie goes on, Arthur, Tom Wilkinson's character, discovers that U-North is actually knowingly doing this. They know that their product causes cancer, and yet they're kind of in their own powerful corporate ways, glossing over it and putting it, uh, shoving it under the rug, and he's kind of had enough, so he loses it. He basically starts making the case for the prosecutors against their own clients. So then the, the law firm that Michael Clayton works for sends him to go and fix it go find arthur and fix it michael meets karen she's not very happy with him he gets arthur arthur runs away they go back to new york arthur continually starts exposing uh U north's maleficence out and um or planning the exposure of it but not really getting there yeah well he's you north knows that he's doing this like he's planning it but no one else really does and so again big spoiler but uh, about a little bit halfway through the movie, you North and Karen, Tilda Swin's character, actually hires a couple of hitmen to kill Arthur because he's getting too close to exposing you North. 
and they successfully do it. But through some confluence of events, Michael kind of figures out that something fishy was here. He doesn't like they they framed it as a suicide by Arthur, but Michael didn't think he would do that. Michael finds out about this girl named Anna that Arthur had been in contact with who was from the Midwest. And she was actually the reason or one of the reasons Arthur was so excited to expose you North because this young girl or like she's, I don't know, early 20s. Arthur was just getting really, uh, really getting along with her and like having an authentic human connection to this young woman. And so it just doesn't add up to Michael. And so then Michael starts pulling at the threads that Arthur had been pulling at quite a bit. And Michael now is very close to exposing you North. And so Karen actually hires the same hitmen to kill Michael and they do blow up his car, but he happens to not be in his car when it happens. So he survives. And then there's a great scene, like just an incredible scene at the end where Michael exposes Karen to the police. And she... Who, who happened to be his brother. Yeah, well, yeah, one of Michael Clayton's yeah. brothers is a is a cop in the New York police force. And the way he exposes her is so clever and smart and fun. And kind of funny, too, actually. And so then... The end of the movie is Karen is getting arrested because she is busted for (laughs) killing Arthur and attempting to bribe Michael Clayton with, I think, $10 million to keep the secret about the fact that you North knowingly makes a fertilizer that is carcinogenic and has actually signed documents saying we know this and we're still going to make it anyway. And yeah, then the end of the movie is actually this really cool scene of him um riding around in a taxi around new york with like kind of soft music and then the credits start to roll this look on his face of sort of redemption but also this sense of you know i've done the right thing but the world is just a dirty horrible place (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i liked and just as a aesthetic aside that last scene in the taxi i loved it because it's so well mirrored the restraint like this whole movie is very restrained because it's it feels kind of understated and yet so many terrible and like kind of things that like there's exciting things happening but the way the cinematography and the dialogue works is that it feels really restrained which is part of michael clayton's character which is just incredible so there's a little plot rundown for you we're gonna be picking round in the scenes but yeah i just was like oh man this is gonna be a good one yeah well I, I like how you pointed that out because it's not something that I consciously was aware of when I was watching it, but you're right. He never loses his temper hardly. I think there's like one scene with his brother where he kind of loses it a little bit with his brother who is struggling with addiction. But other than that, he never really loses it. And then the one really intense emotional moment is when he's telling his son, you're strong, you're going to get through this. And I think, like in a sense, he's kind of telling himself that too. Yeah. Like, Well, and it's, uh, yeah, he's so, there's a scene right at the beginning, the first kind of 10 minutes of the movie are the end of the story told from one perspective. So near the beginning of the movie, we actually do see his car blow up when he's out in the country, and then about the 10 or 15 minutes previous to that. And so we kind of see these things happening. And then you see that scene told from a different perspective near the end of the movie, and after all of the things that have happened to Michael in the movie, you go back and watch that first scene again, and you're like, whoa, how are you not losing your mind? Yeah, like everything is, is that, going to crap. That first mind. scene is we're, we're learning about Michael as a character, and then later we're watching that scene again. 
knowing learning, Michael as a character. Knowing Michael's a character and learning even more about him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, so that's a really good point and I think we should we should dig into that a little bit more. Like what do you think it is about Michael that allows him to hold fast in the face of like really some not just in unfortunate events, but pretty traumatizing events. What was the traumatizing one, did you think? I think when your brother like ruins the business you started together because of his addiction. Like that, I feel like that would be pretty traumatizing. Yeah, so one of the major plot points is that Michael and his brother have taken out uh, a $75,000 loan from what I guess is the mob. It's never, I don't think it's ever said, but it's like heavily a or something. Someone's going to get hurt if. Not a bank. No, no. <laughs> it's not a bank. It's someone who comes for your kneecaps or worse if you can't pay up. And he can't. Like the restaurant fails and his brother ditches out on him. So he's left with the whole bill, even though it was not just his idea. Which he thinks is going to be smaller, right? He's sitting there talking to the bookie about how much he owes. He says, so how much do I owe? They're auctioning off everything in the restaurant. And the bookie looks at him and says, 75. And he's like, what? Like, I thought it would be like 25, 30. And he's like, oh, you don't have 75 lying around? He's like, well, not just lying around. And so here we have pretty extreme amount of stress to be going through as someone you, you owe 75 grand to the mob yeah the whole early bit of the movie we find out these really big stressors that are happening in michael clayton's life right now where he's like he owes all this money to the mob which by itself would be a lot but he there's like a little bit of a montage too near the start where he's going through uh, lots of different phone calls so he's like got so many cases on the go, which is just stressful because that's work stuff. There's a potential merger between his law firm and one in London. Which means he doesn't really know if he'll have a job anymore. Yeah. So he's divorced, so he's he's trying to share custody of his of his son. Yeah, so divorced, potential merger, losing his job, owing seventy five thousand dollars to the mob. Uh what else? There's got there's more in there that is a brother who's like a serious problem with addiction. Yeah, and he himself has had issues with addiction and gambling. He's lost a lot of money playing cards, so that kind of specter is always hanging around his shoulders. And there's a few comments throughout the movie where everyone else is like, "Oh, you're at the cards again, or what?" You know? Yeah. So, so that everyone kind of knows he's he's obviously exposed this to everyone in his life because they all know that he struggles with this. This isn't an addiction. He's been hiding necessarily. And actually, we hear one line in the movie where they're like, oh, he's like, it's been 10 months since I played. Uh, so he he isn't breaking on this. Uh, he, he wants to be done. Like, he knows what that addiction did to him. Yeah. And he, like, as far as his job goes, it's a pretty good job. He's working for this law, f- like this super rich law firm. And he's in good with his boss, Sidney Pollock. Uh, Marty Bachman is the character's name. Yeah, says he's invaluable. Like yeah. everyone understands how important this guy is to what they're trying to do. Because mm-hmm. this guy, a miracle worker, a fixer, a janitor, they they call him all kinds of things. But like at the end of the day, this is the guy who goes in, gets his hand dirty, and gets the job done. Mm-hmm. So that by itself, before we even like dig into anything else, is enough to make a person stressed, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so this is this is the context of where this character is starting in this movie is pretty far behind the eight ball, but with still some ray of hope. Um, He seems to have a pretty good relationship with his son when he does see him, even though his son is annoyed with his dad's lack of interest in his kind of fantasy game that he plays. He's good at his job. He seems to have like a good standing with most of his colleagues. So there's like, uh, and the mob guy, 
he's actually quite taken aback <laughs> that Michael can't immediately pay his bill. Like he just would never believe it because I guess presumably Michael has good standing with him too. Yeah, and and I mean he works at this great this huge law firm and and there's an expectation that he he has a lot of money because his job is very important, but he he drives a leased car. He's probably paying alimony that we don't know. Like he it doesn't he isn't doing great financially, but he is flying around on private jets to go deal with stuff. Like that's how much the firm trusts him. Yeah. So the movie itself starts with a monologue by Arthur, Tom Wilkinson's character, and it's pretty manic, hey? Like he's he's kind of in a there's a desperation to what he's talking and he's giving this talk that seems really out of place in a modern context because he's talking about like he's seen the face of evil and he's he's taught he like talks about a dream he's having where he i can't remember exactly what happens but he's feeling like like he kind of he walks out of this building and he feels like he's walking out of a womb and he feels like he's covered in this slime or and at first he thinks in the dream that it's like an afterbirth or it's like something and that he's being reborn and he's finally understanding things but then he's like well and it's very verbiose it's for anyone who really enjoys words and and literature it's it's really well uh crafted and i'm not going to do it justice but at the end he says what i realized was actually i've been shat out like i've been out of an asshole and i was covered in shit and because this organization that i work for basically the the implication is he's just serving a poisonous, destructive organization who's defending people who are trying to destroy everything that's beautiful. Well, he says, trying to destroy everything that's good about humanity. Yeah. That's how he conceives of the company New U North, and, and, which yeah. is, which I is, believe, the, the law firm that he works for, that Arthur works for, and Michael is called Bachman, what is it, Bachman Ladine Turner? Something like that. Marty Bachman is the main guy. He's the main partner. It's like it's like three last names of people. Pretty so, typical for a law firm. Yeah, and so both him and Michael and Arthur are colleagues, and we learn um, about twenty five minutes later in the movie that this monologue that Arthur is delivering is actually being done to Michael in a jail cell in Milwaukee, uh, because. Arthur actually started stripping naked in a deposition room <laughs> with, with with the plaintiffs right there and claiming that he loved this Anna girl. Mental stability, maybe not. Well, we <laughs> find out that be. actually it seems he, he does have chemical imbalances that Michael's had to deal with in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I, what I find Which is out, Michael, what Michael thinks all hmm. that's happening this time, at least initially. Yeah, and, and I think that's what I find so fascinating about Arthur's character is He's saying things that seem really true. He's he's enlightened and he and he feels that way. He feels like he's stumbled on the truth and that nothing he'd done up to this point matters. This guy's going through not just a midlife crisis. And he's established. Yeah, like, like this is a super rich, super established, probably mid to late fifties lawyer who's set. He spent ten thousand hours on this case and he talks about how he was doing the math. That's years of his life, literally years, twenty four hour day period, years of his life that he spent on this case and he's looking at it all and he's like is this what my life means is this what matters to me is that is is defending this corporation that now i know and i kind of always knew was killing these people is that who i am and he's coming to this epiphany in this kind of manic episode that he's going through because he stopped taking his medication that you know maybe he's not the good guy (laughs) yeah and and that is a Talk about coming 
face to face with. So uh, just as a bit of a backup, one of my favorite George Orwell quotes is he says, or George Orwell speaking about himself says, one of the thing, things he thinks he's the separates him maybe from other authors of his era was that he had the power to face unpleasant facts. And Arthur is coming face to face with one of the most, I, maybe one of the most unpleasant facts a person could, where it's your vocation. So the thing you've spent most of your time doing has actually been contributing to the net deterioration of people's existence. You're actually bringing more suffering to the world simply by doing what you're doing. Yeah, because he's representing, and he's a great lawyer. Like, there's everything about Arthur. You're like, okay, this guy is on top of his craft. And he's been spending all this time, like you said, years of his life, defending a company that has no problem signing off on a fertilizer that is extremely carcinogenic. And like, what is this? So so this is an interesting existential moment for Arthur, but it's a moment we all need to have. What in our lives are we doing that is making the world worse? It might not be your job. It might be just an attitude that you have or a way of treating people or trying to get your way in certain situations. Um, we all do this. And, and until we confront that evil in ourselves, we're going to be stuck making excuses for ourselves. And I think for six years, Michael's kind of been making excuses to Arthur and saying, yeah. oh, no, this is why we do it. And you're fine. And we got into this knowing what it was. And Marty has a line as well to Michael where he says, you've been here six years. How do you think you've seen what goes on? You see what kind of clients we got. How do you think we pay the bills? Yeah, seven, 17 years. Uh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Michael had been working there My, for 17, for 17 yeah. years. And uh, and it's interesting because Michael kind of looks at him like, yeah, I know. I'm your bag man. Like, I'm the one who actually deals with the filth. I'm the one who deals. You don't got to tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, like, I get it. So Arthur's confronting this. Uh, yeah, and the note I made is like, man, his realization is striking. Because he's having a true crisis of conscience. Like, not a euphemism. L like, he is throwing away his whole career because of this realization. Where he, you know, he's stripping naked in a deposition room. He's running away from Michael, the guy who came to help him. Because he runs away from the hotel when Michael shows up. He is risking his job, to say the least. And then, a little bit later, he's just kind of brazenly risking his life by but, trying to expose you north. But we also see a bit of a, a contraposition here, right? Because we've got Michael, who seems to never really lose it. And similar shitty things are happening to Michael. He's divorced. Arthur's wife died. His career is kind of in a weird place. Obviously, we're experiencing we're seeing that Arthur feels like his career is in a weird place. And Michael goes through similar confronting his darkness. Michael never loses it, never goes nuts. Whereas Arthur completely loses it. Like mm -hmm. he, he strips down naked. He, by definition, he's gone nuts. Yeah. And, well, I think it's like kind of with the metaphor that Arthur's been using, like he feels like it's just, it's inside of his body, right? Like he, he, there's an evil now inside of him that he can't, I mean, he makes it so poetic. I mean, really, this is just a, it's awful, but it's kind of like Arthur gets borderline Shakespearean in his uh, venting of how awful what this company is doing is. And at the beginning, anyway, Michael is much more, Kind of like, oh, he's off his meds. 
so yeah, he's restrained. But like in the first half of the movie, at least, Michael doesn't really get what Arthur like what the big deal is because Arthur isn't exactly telling him either, <laughs> right? Because Arthur actually does have a document proving which Karen actually finds in Arthur's possessions possessions yeah. like arthur does have a document that says you north back in the early 90s the former ceo signed off on this thing so there's evidence that you north actually knew about this and still said do it anyway and but michael doesn't no he hasn't seen this document he actually like that's one of the funny things about this movie this document plays like almost a character role it's a very significant piece in the movie and Michael doesn't know about it till three quarters of the way through. Yeah. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is we aren't all dealing with multinational corporations or, or you know, these massive problems of people, th- thousands of people dying from cancer or our law firm defending, you know, basically murderers. What's an example that you could take in real life and say when you have to confront it? What would be an example, do you think? Probably much more likely would be just kind of more everyday injustices, people not getting treated fairly, um, and again, people with power or people you represent. I mean, this is a recurring theme, and it's a great one, but there's one thing to point out bad intentions or bad outcomes or evil in like an enemy (laughs) or even just a bystander or like someone you're not beholden to in any way, but... With Arthur, he's having to do it to his client, but it's a multi-billion dollar client. Like the retainer that they pay is astronomical. So essentially, like they like he works for them, right? Like in a, in a sense, you North is his boss, so he works for this company by getting so much money defending them. So he's actually also he also has to go against his own interest in exposing them. And to do that takes a much, uh, much more visceral and deep and fortitudinous or fortitudinal ability. And I think that's what is so great about it. Like the motif of it strikes us so hard because I just know there's, if you're beholden to someone in any way, so yeah, your work, but also um, maybe people who you at some level owe a favor to. Or, like, Michael struggles with that later in the movie, too. He's beholden to Marty and this other character, Barry, because they, they pay off his They his pay debt. off his debt. They give him an $80,000 check to pay off his debt. There's strings attached, but he's beholden. He can't, at that moment yet, he can't stand up to them, even though he knows he should. But because he hasn't had that deeper oh man, I got to subvert my own interest because this is so awful kind of thing. And he might even, that's the scene Marty tells him, like, how do you think we pay the bills? (laughs) You know, we take, this case was dirty from the start. Yeah, and I think going on that, so often, and I've had people in my own life do this, they'd be like, well, how do I protect myself in this moment? Mm -hmm. They realize they've done something wrong. They don't want to continue doing that wrong thing, but they have to do another wrong thing to cover up that first wrong thing that they did. And you end up, and believe you me i've seen this happen time and time again and it never pays off right because you know it's like well an old saying my mom used to say oh what a tangled web we weave when first we set out to deceive right yes and uh but it's more than that because it it corrupts your soul and it corrupts 
your ability to perceive right from wrong because then you start rationalizing it to yourself. And we see Michael trying to rationalize the bad things that are happening to Arthur. He uses things like, you're going to lose your position in the company. You're going to lose your reputation. Kind of like meant as helpful warnings, but really they're threats. Even though that Michael isn't the one who can carry out the threat, he's trying, at, at least at the beginning, to kind of show Arthur, hey, this is what will happen to you, and like, you need to pull the brakes on this, because you're losing your mind, and if you continue down this path, you're going to have major consequences, even if what you're saying is true, even though Arthur hasn't... This is one of the things I didn't get. Arthur doesn't tell Michael at the beginning when Michael and Arthur have scenes together in Milwaukee, he doesn't tell Michael what happened. He doesn't tell Michael what you North did. Presumably, I guess, because he wants like this kind of grand um, exposure that he's planning. Right. Yeah. He, he, he never tells Michael. So my, Michael's just operating in the world. He's always been in saying, look guys, this is how the world operates. It doesn't matter if you have some moral feeling towards something you've been doing for six years. Or you feel like your life's been wasted. He's like, a, it hasn't, you're one of the most respected lawyers in New York, you've reached this pinnacle of achievement. Hate the sewer, not the rat, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, and he's like, well, we're just got to, you know, you just got to get back on your meds. He's doing what he's always done. And this mm-hmm. is one of my favorite parts of the movie. This is how he's operated his entire time working for the firm. This is how he fixes things. He reminds people of what they have to lose. He manipulates them in some way to do what his bosses wants. He's a, he's a manipulator. I don't mean that in that really a bad way necessarily, but he gets results. He's like a, a world-weary realist. Maybe he's a better yeah, way than a manipulator, yeah, right? Yeah. Like he's kind of... T- like there's a little bit... Of the, the whole movie, there's a tiredness. Like he's... Michael's calm, but he's also kind of a little bit tired in the way he presents himself and the way he even talks in that he... His, the reminders he keeps... And, and even a conversation he quickly has with Karen where she is not happy with his answer. He's like, well you wanted a reason (laughs) you know Uh, like he's reminding people of the fact especially arthur he's reminding him of the fact that the world that we live in is already corrupt and the best you can do is not have it take you down too yeah yeah exactly and and he i like that that he's tired because there's a tiredness also he doesn't get part of why he doesn't get excited and get pushed around emotionally is that tiredness he's just like nothing's worth getting that worked up about because and actually this is a common trait in gamblers right because they're so used to the high adrenaline state of gambling large amounts of money and that feeling of of tension like professional gamblers but also problem gamblers and the rest of their life will everything will seem like lower level that's why they're addicted to gambling because everything seems dull and uninteresting compared to that rush they get and it's a it's a chemical thing by that rush they get from gambling well that's really interesting i hadn't thought about that that's cool there is a great scene with arthur and henry henry is michael's son he looks like he's about 10 10 or 11 and the scene in milwaukee where the deposition happened and then Michael went there. They're in a hotel room, and Arthur is actually talking. Henry phones his dad to talk to his dad, but Arthur actually answers, and Arthur ends up being the person that talks to Henry, and they have a long conversation, and Henry tells Arthur about this kind of fantasy book slash game. I think it... No, it's a book. It's a book. It's a book. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a fantasy... Realm Conquest. Conquest Realm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And at the beginning of the movie, Henry had actually tried to tell his dad about this. And his dad was like a little bit dismissive because he's busy because <laughs> this is a kid thing and Michael does adult things, right? And But Arthur listens to Henry and he writes down the name of the book and later in the movie we find out he actually buys it and he listens to Henry. He listens to this kid and so Arthur's honestly engaging with a kid and it's a beautiful thing because it can help you see things as they should be seen. There's a kind of clarity, a moral clarity even to kids where I think I've heard it called like um, as kids... And when we teach kids, we teach them all of these little truths about life where you don't steal, right? Or you don't lie or you don't kill, right? But then as you get older, you start equivocating on these little truths to make all of these kind of exceptions that are acceptable. Like you don't kill, but unless you're a soldier and then it's totally fine. And in fact, that's what you want to do, right? And you don't steal, but you set up maybe uh, an insurance system to make sure that you are not having to pay off too many premiums. You know, uh, you don't lie um, unless, you know, it's uh, better for your case, maybe, right? Or you, it's not omission isn't, you know, like these, all these equivocations. But when you're talking to a kid, and again, as you know, I work with kids, like these don't work, right? And And we don't even at least almost never, we don't accept it if a kid does do it. If they give these excuses, we're like, it still doesn't matter. You don't do it. And yet, I just seem to feel like as we get older, we just don't hold those, we don't hold the same standards for other adults that we do for kids. Yeah. (laughs) When it it comes to like basic ethics. And we're kind of, again, going back to that theme, we're worn down by, by life sometimes, right? It's like, well, it turns out everything is way more complicated than I thought it was when I was a kid. But, but is it that much more complicated? Or have we just kind of been stepping back and saying, ah, we'll let this one slide. Ah, we'll let that slide. Especially when you see people who are acting in a kind of normatively unethical manner moving ahead in some metric. Why why do the wicked prosper, right? I mean, this is a a question as old as time, and I think a large part of it is we we see these people prospering, and we're like, oh, well, maybe, you know, I'll I'll fudge around the edges. Maybe I'll I'll cheat a little bit on this or a little white lie. How can you get through? It's like that there's that movie uh the 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 birth of lying or the the, the invention of the lying. The invention of lying. Yeah, right? Ricky it's, Gervais. Yeah, it's it's a ridiculous film, but I enjoyed it cuz it's like, oh, we couldn't exist without lying. But okay, maybe we maybe that's true and that's a, a different discussion to have. But we still don't allow kids to lie, and we still get mad at people when they lie to us, and we have this huge sense of injustice when someone lies and says they're not going to tell people something and then do tell people something. Well, I mean, there's not – I don't have – well, basically, (laughs) I should preface all of this. I don't have any area of expertise, so anytime (laughs) I pontificate, it's not in any area of expertise. However, the reason lying is so dissuaded – my guess is that it obviously erodes trust and you need trust to keep your tribe vibrant that you're actually like being honestly communicative with the other people in your tribe so you know about impending dangers where the food source is where the water is etc right as we've gotten into much more and more and more complicated societies economics politics you can go so long without seeing someone who will be able to call you out on a lie in any meaningful sense. So it it's like that little thing where kids realize when you tell a lie, ooh, I got what I wanted. This is so great. So if you get all of that, quote, for lack of a better term, benefit of a lie, which is the thing you want right away, without 
as much social pressure on a repercussion, like parents can discipline a kid who lies. <laughs> I remember from my own life, the first time I ever got caught lying, we had these um, Flintstone vitamins. I don't know if you remember those. But yeah, they're like, yeah, I remember Like little those. multivitamins <laughs> you take, but they're shaped like the Flintstones and had like orange, cherry, or grape flavor or whatever. They were really tasty. Actually. I must have been about four. And I had one. My I, I was up early with my mom and I had one. I was only allowed one a day. And my mom went to work and then my dad was up later and asked if I'd had one. And I said, no, because I really wanted another one. And he said, okay, well, I'm just going to call mom and make sure. <laughs> so I got busted <laughs> so hard. <laughs> yeah, that's the first time ever. And it's like, but, you know, to me, I was like, well, if I lie, I can, I can get another, get another delicious vitamin. <laughs> so anyway, more in line with what we're talking about though like if you have that potential benefit for a lie without as much of the penalty like the social penalty you might pay for eroding the trust of your group and if that has multi-million dollars hanging on it like it does for arthur slash michael you can see why like it's a lot of this movie is a conflict of incentives yeah but with arthur what's so cool is that Presumably, he's been swimming in this world for, you know, 30, 40 years, whatever long, however long he's been a lawyer, but he makes an authentic connection to Henry. Like, he already knows Henry. He makes an authentic connection to Harry, <laughs> Harry, Henry. And we also find out later in the movie, he's made an authentic connection to this girl named Anna, who he met in the Midwest, who's kind of like the galvanizing force to make him finally stand up for what's right. And so I loved that they, that they showed this with, like, basically kind of not simple people but people who are in a less complicated scenario of life than manhattan lawyers would be and right? it's and it's made these people or these people have brought arthur wisdom whether it's anna through love i guess he seems to be a, in some weird way in love she's with just her. telling him the truth and about just, what yeah. happened to her and her family yeah she's just literally telling him and then there's also henry who's just excited about his book yeah but so there's wisdom in this book by excited extension excited about life there's really true right? fiction in this book you might <laughs> yeah, be able to yeah. say <laughs> yeah henry is excited about his book but he's excited about it in the way that a 10 year old is excited about things in life that are exciting to them if you've ever been a kid or known kids like there is a there's just a life excitement that you kind of get back when you spend time with kids again when you're older you know and and arthur is like really worn down by all of the things that happened to him. But re-engaging with a kid like Henry, even in a phone call, puts him like just gives him all that energy again. And it kind of makes him run away. And 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 you know, be excited about this idea of summoning and this idea of, oh, he's got this summons. He's had this dream and this dream matters and it means something. And for him it means you gotta get out of this filth you've been living in. Yeah. And so there's a really super important scene later in the movie with Arthur and Michael again back in New York. But before we get there, I do want to set a little bit more context for Michael because it'll really, I think, help get where he's coming from. So my very first note on Michael is that the first scene in the movie where we really see him in action, he's at a card game, but we don't know he's a gambler yet, so this is no, no context. He gets a phone call from Walter, who's one of the partners, but he's on vacation in the Bahamas, I think he says. He says, you got to get this client go talk to this client. He thinks it's a hit and run. You need to come help me on this kind of thing. You'll be a lifesaver. So he drives up to um, the suburbs and he, like this guy that this, the client is so like, he, well, he's panicked. 
but he's trying to hide it. But he like he just hit a runner. Like so he was in his car, he hit a pedestrian and left the scene. And Michael is like just telling him, We need a we need a criminal lawyer. There's some people up here I like, and this guy's losing his shit on Michael. He's like, No, you're a fixer. Make this go away. And Michael's like you hit a person. <laughs> what and, do you want and, me to do? And, and you did it in such a way that they're going to get you no matter what. Yeah, so. like the, there's paint left at the scene. But, you but have actually, a really unique car. I love this scene because I actually think, I mean, this might be a conspiracy theory in the film, but I think this is kind of his start of on the road to redemption. Because I think he normally would have been the guy. He's known as a miracle worker, the janitor, the fixer. I think he normally would have tried to find a way to fix this problem. But because of what we learn later in the film about what he's been going through, what he's seen happen with Arthur, realize that Arthur's been killed, realize this company that they've been working for is killing people, talked to, to Anna. Then he enters this scene, and he's just cracked on his gambling, right? He's just gone back after not because that's how he cracks, right? He goes and does this thing he knows he shouldn't do. He gives the $75,000 check to the bookie, he got an $80,000 check from his bosses. He takes that five grand and he goes and he's, and he's gambling. That is how he's dealing with his stress. But he's stressed because I think he's confronting the same thing that Arthur was. Wow. All of this evil that I've been participating in. I'm, I'm stuck in this underbelly of the, of the world. And he goes to fix this situation with this other guy. And he's just like, nope, you just need a criminal lawyer. Yeah, maybe. That's a cool theory. I hadn't even thought about that at all. There's no way to know one way or the other because they don't reference no, they don't, it. Yeah, it's, it's it's more of that the when lower, we s- the story underneath the story. Yeah, and when we see it from the first time with the first perspective, it's much more like introducing us to him. And so he, this is a very stressful moment. There's a, This is a major client who gives them a lot of money being pretty rude to Michael and angry and defensive and etc all these negative things and yet michael is able like he stays calm and reasonable and like that's kind of amazing i guess to give it kind of a buzzword like he's very professional right but it feels like more than that because you can just see i don't know like it's like a it's it's not it doesn't quite rise to the level of impatience it's kind of this tiredness again where Michael's just so exhausted by, again, as we learn more, all these things happening to him. But he's just, he stays on his path. <laughs> you know, well, like yeah, he doesn't deviate. It's like watching a, a professional uh, athlete who's just very good at what they're, they've, and they know how to do it. And they've done it so many times. And he's just like, you know, there's, it almost looks sometimes like they're bored, right? Because they're so good at what they do. And you see that in this scene with him. He's so good at what he does that he just, he, this is habit to him now. He's been doing this for 17 years. Like he knows what he's doing mm-hmm. and, he's, and he knows how to make a choice quickly. And he knows how to read a situation quickly. And yet even Michael Clayton is human. Cause there's still one guy who gets under his skin in the movie. And that's this Barry character. Who's a, I don't think he's quite a partner in the law for, law firm that he works for, but he's a high ranking executive in there. Right. He's, and so there's a funny, um, I'm not arguing with you, Barry. I'm just telling you how it is. And it's like the only time, one of the only times in the movie where there's like an edge to Michael's voice where he's clearly audibly upset or like, again, like Barry strikes strikes a nerve. And again, this is, I love when this happens in a story because our characters who are showing just some super ego 
ability to rise above everything still have like these couple little people in their lives who can grab them up from the clouds and pull them back down in the muck to argue like a chimp again with them, you know? And I like that because I think, you know, I consider myself a pretty calm, even keel, a lot of equilibrium in my life, but there are definitely people I've met in my life who I can, they bring me back. They bring me down from that, you know? Yeah. I think we all have, there's no one who is a, who is beyond being, brought down a bit and I, I like that humanizing part of him that was just guy fucking barry <laughs> it's always <laughs> a you barry can tell, you can tell he just does not like barry or, no. or doesn't even respect barry i don't think so then anyway michael has gone through all this rigmarole he's had to fly to milwaukee only to have arthur disappear disappear ditch him and still up to this point michael doesn't understand the deeper things going on that arthur's doing so we're we're about almost an hour into the movie already and michael still only thinks all that's happened is that arthur's off his meds and he's acting crazy and he's gonna lose his job and we definitely get the sense that there is a but also his bosses are like putting a lot of pressure on him to fix this to fix arthur the arthur situation and we get the sense that michael and arthur are always friendly but they're not friends exactly like they I think Arthur has, in this scene that we're talking about where uh, Michael meets Arthur again in New York City, Arthur tells Michael, I think I've always had a affection for you, but there's still like no daylight (laughs) between the two of them. Michael's like, you got to stop doing this. And Arthur's like, you don't understand. And there's this awesome line at the end of their conversation. And it's the last time they talk to each other, actually, where Michael says, come on, Arthur, I'm not the enemy. And Arthur says, well, then who are you? putting the onus back on Michael to really have to, if he so chooses to take a deep look back at all of the things that exist in his own work life, working for this law firm. So if he's not the enemy, then who is he? Then who is he? Right. And, and Michael, like these are not the kind of questions Michael has to ask himself. He has to ask himself, like, how do I fix this problem? Who do I bribe in quotation marks? I put that like, who do I have to get some dirt on to get my way on them? But be asked well if you're not the enemy michael who are you and this is like a metaphysical question yeah that arthur is asking michael and michael's not ready for that so michael just kind of like shrugs and arthur walks away says hey if you wanted to arrest me you should have done it in wisconsin where this happened kind of thing but like going back to that i mean the ending scene where he goes on his kind of monologue about why would you try to kill me? I'm not the kind of guy you kill. I'm the guy you pay off. Like, you should know that. Michael's sh- saying this to Karen. Yeah, we're saying this to Karen. You should know who I am. And it's honestly, you listen to, the, to that part of the dialogue, and it's him existentially understanding himself and the problems with him. And how to not be the enemy anymore. Yeah, how, and he's he's detailing what the enemy is. Because this is yeah that that part. Well, the very end of the movie is the resolution to that question that Arthur asks him in this scene. Yes, if exactly, you're not the enemy, yeah. who are you? And it's the first time where there's an even an inch of an inkling where Michael, as the audience, we see is like Michael's starting to maybe think a little bit about what he's doing, what he's involved in. And then the next scene is them at Michael's brother and sister-in-law's it's uh, like a, a house, kid's birthday party kid's birthday party yeah. henry's there michael's there michael and we find out in this scene that <clears throat> michael's brother is a cop and 
Um, Michael's talking to him about his troubles. He's talking to him about all the money he owes for this restaurant. Talking about this other, their other brother, Tim, who's the addict brother that uh, fucked Michael over with the mob. And so when they're leaving the party, which is an amazing scene with Michael and Henry. And this is after Michael's been asked, if you're not the enemy, who are you? Kind of thing. What I love about the scene is we also see just before this, Tim, the brother, shows up at the birthday party as they're leaving. And apparently he's got this really good relationship with Henry. Like they love each other. They're friends. They care about each other. Fun Uncle Tim. Yeah, he's fun Uncle Tim or whatever. And and Michael gets in the vehicle. and, And as he's driving with Henry... He stops the car and he looks over at Henry and he says, I just want you to know that's not going to happen to you. You're, you're strong. I see that strength in you. I don't know what, where it comes from. So he's, he's in a sense saying he doesn't have it, but he does have it because we see this strength. Like Michael's able to handle a lot. Yeah, he is. And he's communicating to Henry. I think his exact line is, that'll never happen to you because in your heart, in your heart, he says it twice, you're strong and you care. And you're good. So he like, they're driving away and he pulls the car over, stops and looks over and tells his son this like super intentionally, super, the first, it's the first moment in the movie, like at no point in the movie, I would have we been given an impression that Michael's a bad parent, but this is a point in the movie where he's actually being a good parent, like positive as in not just good, but as in an emotion, like he's emoting out to his son. He's initiating a positive thing about his son that he wants to tell him for no reason other than you're my son and you need to know this because life is going to be hard and it's going to be ugly and you are going to have moments where you want to go the Uncle Tim route, but you, you, I believe that you don't have to because you are actually strong. And this is a perfect small little jump forward for Michael in the narrative in that, okay, this is like step one of him not being the enemy anymore. Right? Yeah. However, yeah. it's also existentially himself confronting himself existentially like this is a kind of in-between moment that a kid remembers where a a 10 year old henry can think back to that time his dad pulled him over in the was in the car pulled over and said you're strong and you have a good heart so don't worry because i trust you and just as an aside, this made me think of this idea I've heard on a podcast last year where it's called Radical Positive Honesty, where as soon as something positive about another person pops into your mind, you tell them because we don't do that <laughs> so well. Yeah, and, and the the cool thing about doing it that way, uh, and I didn't know about it until you described it to me, but the cool thing about doing it that way is if it pops into your head and then you just say it, it can't be flattery because it's literally just a thought you had. Yeah, like, well, in, there's no intention while there there might be a subconscious. Not it, not to get into the whole uh, philosophical discussion about free will, but is if it occurs to me, it's not contrived or affected. It's not an affectation that I'm just trying to flatter you. So Michael is having this like in the moment. You can see in his facial expression and when he pulls over and says this to Henry, like he is ingesting so much of the world around him right now and so much of it is terrible basically everything that's happening is terrible right now except henry henry's good and he's strong and he's smart and he's got a good heart and michael still believes that that is more important that's what matters yeah Yeah. and and it's i think it's because arthur challenged him yeah with that one comment yeah and this is michael again to reiterate this is his first step to not being the enemy and 
Michael doesn't even really know who the enemy is. Right yeah, now. He, he, he doesn't still, know yet about what the, he still the doesn't know what the the company's done. He yeah. knows that U North probably has its fingers in lots of pies, but he doesn't know exactly. So he doesn't know. So again, this is a. It's like Michael is discovering, thinking about this for lack of a better term at a metaphysical level, where he's like, okay, how do I not be the enemy in life? And it seems to me one major step to not being an enemy in the world is being encouraging to to a child yeah to move on to something good like that's whatever you i don't know (laughs) the nature of the ethical structure of the universe but i definitely think encouraging a child is not being the enemy i like that and i think that builds off of kind of his because there is a bit of a redemption arc here and i think we we see that as as he proceeds through the rest of the film, this idea that now he's been challenged and that's the seed that's been planted and it kind of transforms him. And one of the things that, and then you're going to have people in your life when you realize that maybe you're the enemy who try to bring you back into it. And we see this with uh, his boss offering him the check. And obviously Michael's not very happy with what's going on anymore. His his friend, mentor, whatever you want to call Arthur, is dead, has died, and he's beginning to question why this happened, and then the money's offered to him. And he's like, you know what, I kind of want to go back to litigation. Like, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the kind of more the lawyerly side of being a lawyer. And his boss says to him, he's like, well, there are tons of litigators. There's tons of people who are good at that. Lots of people who are better than you at that. And he said, but you're great at this you have a niche you have a niche everyone wants a niche right and so oftentimes that's how we could be manipulated by people who are using us for their own nefarious purposes is when they flatter us so the difference between what michael does in the car in speaking to henry radical positivity like full-on telling him something that is meaningful and that has nothing to do with what he does but who he is yeah versus what marty says to Michael, which is no, you got this niche. You're really good at this. This is this is where you're you're not you're not just good at this. You're great at this. People long to be great at things. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting how that that contrast between how Michael talks to Henry and then um, a little bit later how Marty talks to Michael. Where with Michael, he's so um, looking at the deepest good that Henry is and can be for the world, whereas Marty is looking at Michael as the most convenient utility for his company. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, Michael... the, the, the slice of people benefited by Michael to Marty is a very tiny percentage. Whereas Michael believes about his son that everybody that, well, essentially the whole world, but anyone that comes into contact with Henry will be benefited. And there's just a difference. There's a categorical difference of... Um, what you're hoping to get out of your presence in the world in those two attitudes. Yeah. And um, I don't know if this, we don't know if this is something that Marty has always had in how he interacts with he's, people. He's the cynic. Yeah. Marty is the cynic of this film, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. He's the, he's the, we do bad things, but we're not bad people sort of person. And how do you think I get this nice house? I'm not well, going to give that even up. Even how he reacts to Arthur's death is so utilitarian. Yeah. 
It's literally we caught a break. Well, we caught a break because I worked of, with this guy for thirty years, but we caught a break. Yeah. Well, good segue. So, <laughs> um, yes, one of the the well, the major shift of this movie is Arthur's death, which everyone, all the other characters are led to believe is a suicide. However, we, the audience, are let in on the fact that Karen Crowder, the U North lead counsel, has actually hired these two men to kill him and there's this really like it's an intense scene his death scene where they drug him put him on the floor i think they inject air into his bloodstream or something and then he dies he he just shakes and dies and actually just before this a really funny scene but probably not a wise one is that arthur is actually antagonizing you north <laughs> he knows actually that they're listening to his phone calls so he reads the memorandum of I believe Don Jeffries, who was the CEO of U North, signing this document that said our fertilizer causes cancer, and he goes through it point by point, <laughs> and is just so sarcastic about it. So he definitely antagonizes U North, and so this leads them to kill Arthur. Which just go the um, and there's a banality of evil sort of thing here. It's like these guys are just doing their job and they're good at it. And they've yeah, been what do you spying want us to do? Him. Yeah, what do you want us to do? Can't say what you want us to do, or at least get someone to say what you want us to do. Because she's well, this is a good segue into Karen and the character of Karen and and how she ends up in a situation where she's murdering people for all. Well, she's not doing the murdering, but she's kind of calling out the hits. She has to be responsible for this because she's now the lead counsel she found the memorandum in arthur's briefcase in milwaukee so she knows that arthur knows about this and she knows that this kind of information could probably ruin you north um and this is a multi-billion dollar company but if it was there was evidence that the ceo (laughs) had signed signed off on something like this yeah that it would dismantle it so she's having to choose her own interests. And she spent her whole life building up her career here. She's reached kind of the pinnacle of her career. There's a scene where she's being interviewed about what it's like to be such a high-powered woman in this job. And you can just tell the stress is is destroying her to some degree, even before. She, and she's so yeah, she takes her job so seriously. It's like a it's probably about over a five minute scene of like it's showing her getting dressed in the morning, practicing for this interview in front of the mirror. This is a woman who is a little bit high strung, but she's just wanting to do so and at well. The top of her game, like I think we've all been around people, men or women like this, who like they work very hard to be the best at what they do. She is spending every waking moment being the best at what she does it made me feel a little bit sad for her though because i mean she does some pretty horrific things in this movie but you just get the sense that she's so like every waking moment is thinking about this job that she just doesn't have other things to counterbalance that give her perspective kind of like this is her whole world and uh, i guess probably it's shows it like what an unhealthy attachment to just your work can be because she well i would say she's a workaholic that's oh, the, that's she, the impression she does, she does come across that way but every everyone in this film is kind of a workaholic uh i guess yeah but she uh is put in a position where she knows that the company could be dismantled and what she, and she's really the only person right now and she doesn't want to bother dawn the 
I don't know what he is in it. He's a board member now, used to be CEO. He's her boss at some level. And there's just a few lines where she's like, I don't want to bother Dawn with this or you know, like it's just so important that she's able to handle this and it and it like you can just tell it's giving her so much anxiety. Yeah, I mean, and there's one scene we don't know why, but she's sitting in a bathroom stall, visibly sweat like stress sweating, like sweat is pouring out of her. I'm pretty sure this is the moment. It, it is uh, just yes. before when she's called the hit out on Michael. Yeah, well, with the hits second hit happening, in a week, basically. Yeah, and she's just and she knows she's got to go into this meeting, and and they're they're getting the the settlement with uh with all these Midwestern farmers done up because they're like, well, we just need to get this out of the way and done before anything else happens. And and she's basically orchestrated a way in which this settlement can happen. It won't cost the company that much money and they'll be able to kind of sweep it under the rug and move on. Yeah, this is her goal to just move past all this without too much collateral or company the company going under, basically. Yes. And there's a great little scene it's really the only scene early in the movie where karen and michael meet and they meet in milwaukee at this bar because michael is the guy that is sent to fix arthur's naked deposition antics and karen beat representing you north is like what the hell man (laughs) like what are we supposed to do about this guy and michael's just tells her about arthur's history and him being off his meds and you can tell that karen is really not impressed with this answer. Like, that's it? He's just not on his meds? So even though she's right, uh, and Michael can't tell her that there is something more going on, what struck me about her attitude is that she wanted something deeper than just meds. Like, she wanted some sort of answer that would give more meaning to this than just a biochemical imbalance, right? And so she's seems to be showing a psychological disposition of wanting an answer closer to her prejudices. So she wants, he's crazy. She wants, this is a tactic. She wants something more conniving. She wants it to be Arthur is maybe doing some grand plan to win. So she has all of these baked in prejudices. You could just tell she's so not happy with Michael's answer. And it made me think, how easy it is to not listen to an answer if it's not the one we want. Oh, I mean, that's <laughs> you know? yeah, one of the... She worst. does not want that answer. No, and and it's interesting because she's used to... We see in the in one of the final scenes where she's explaining to the board how the settlement's going to work. She's like, well, we figured out that the the lawyers on the other side were getting a certain percentage up to a certain point, and then they were getting a lower percentage after that. And she's like, and there's this gray area where the lawyers on the other side of the case won't care as much if the settlement is much bigger. And we found this sweet bo- spot where we can write off the settlement as a loss and get tax for, taxes back for it. And the company won't be really hurting that badly. This is how she thinks. She thinks in these broad strategies, everyone's in it for their own self-interest. How do we use other people's self-interest to achieve what we want? And Michael's not doing this. He's just like, well, Arthur's a human and he's going through something that humans go through. Yeah. And so even at this stage yet, Karen hasn't figured out what Arthur's doing, but she's being so unimpressed with Michael's answer uh, for Arthur's behavior. Uh, she, it just, I, I was like, wow, you know, she wants a different answer and she wants Michael to flatter her prejudice. In this moment, she wants Michael to be like, you know what? 
I think maybe the stress is getting to him or maybe he's cracked. Like maybe he really has lost his mind because this is like from her perspective, this is a major catastrophe. And yet Michael being, again, his kind of tired, (laughs) slightly disinterested self in the moment he's in, she's feeling like you don't care and you're not telling me what I want to hear. And yet from Michael's perspective, he's like, I've seen this before and here's what's happening. Like you wanted a reason, right? Like this is all he's just saying. And so, yeah, I I think what it kind of helped me think about was, man, okay. When I'm faced with a scenario of something that I have no idea what is someone's motivation, (laughs) really ask myself, okay, well, what are the answers that might make me feel self-justified or self self-important or like oh I got you figured out and then because those are probably the prejudices that are working in my own mind to try and like that's what's clouding my desire to hear the other person's answer for their own motivations or someone else's motivations right and Karen has her I don't think she can articulate them she has her own prejudices and Michael's not flattering them and that's pissing her off (laughs) yeah and then she ends up going down a very dark path because of that because she discovers discovers what what Arthur's what doing. Arthur's doing and and decides that you know what's one human life basically compared to my ambition that's when she loses her morality that's yes. that's the moment of the rubicon crossed for her character where when Arthur makes his tape and she listens to it through i think it's Vince the hitman i think first she says so what do we do now and he's like well we could always like threaten him and then she's like and the other way and then Vince's like, well, it's the other way. Clearly, they're talking about killing him because Arthur is about to expose them. And she signs off on it, right? And so this is the moment where she uh, loses. She goes from being kind of swarmy or slimy or self-interested or whatever to doing an evil act, which yeah. is killing Arthur. Well, yeah, and does it, seemingly with the Arthur one, not a lot of remorse. There doesn't seem to be a lot of of stress in this. She's like, well, I've got to do what I have to do to protect my job, the company, everything that's giving me meaning in life, which is her job. We can tell this because every waking moment is spent preparing for this job, talking about this job. And at least ostensibly, the reason she does this is so that Dawn doesn't find out that this is what Arthur was doing. So not even that the company will go under, although that would surely follow, but that the her mentor... Dawn doesn't find out that any of this is even happening. And so, like, this is the choice she makes. She chooses to kill a person instead of having this uncomfortable fact revealed to her boss that their lead process or their lead defense lawyer is actually making the case for the prosecutor about a document that he signed. She didn't even sign it. He yeah. did this. Yeah, she's just protecting this guy who yeah. she says in the film, this is like what you were pointing to, every sentence, every is- phrase matters, where she says in the interview, well, Dawn g- gave me an opportunity I never would have expected to yeah. be here. And this is her choice. This is her great choice. The great choice that all characters have in films or stories where everything it's everything before that choice and everything after that choice are different. And this, and she chooses that. And I think it's so important that the film shows it as a deliberative choice. It's not like on a whim even, right? It's not a, a murder of passion. No, <laughs> it's no. 
It's Pre- not manslaughter. It's not an accident. It's premeditated. Either. We're taking you out because of what you stand to damage our temporal terrestrial company. So they, I, I just want to like <laughs> make sure we know what she's done here. She has deliberately chosen to end a human life rather than end a non-human entity uh, such as her company. Because that's the value that she's put in this Because that's what she's, that, that's where her value lies, right? I don't want us to be equivocating on that. No, no. Because even though a lot of this movie for me is sympathizing with Karen because of her workaholicism and anxiety and like real desire to do well in her career, this no one makes this choice but her. Now, sure, there's <laughs> obviously the hitmen themselves are not great, and we, <laughs> I think, appropriately don't even consider them. <laughs> Uh, worthy enough to even be ju- bad ju- judged badly they're just bad right but i just don't want us to lose like that's the choice she makes and, and losing sight of anything that really matters because you're so consumed by this one thing and for her and then it's just back to work for her <laughs> right it's just back to work board meetings talking to dawn figuring everything else out after arthur's death which everyone is considering to be a suicide one one of the really cool things that happens is that like this piece of news just doesn't ring true with michael he thinks about all of the things arthur was talking about like in his last few days arthur was so full of life and energy and gusto and verve and ready to take on everything it seemed to michael like this this sudden switch just doesn't make sense to him and because now michael also has this don't be the enemy type of ethos to his thinking he can't let go of it when the details don't add up. So he he wants to know what the truth is, uh, even if it's against his own interests in this moment. And like, this is a great little narrative ploy that I love that is in many movies or TV shows, probably the best example I can think of off the top of my head is um, in season one of Stranger Things, when at least at the beginning of the season, uh, Detective Hopper is much more on the side of the government and the employees and against the kids kind of thing like but because a, a detail or two of the case just don't seem to quite add up to him he keeps pulling at those threads until he starts to find out the truth and then he completely switches sides and sides with the kids and so what michael is doing is pulling at threads why why does a person pull at threads because well a arthur was at least a mild friend of his and he cared about him but also Like, this is such a dire scenario, and Michael can't let there be any doubt, right? He can't sit there thinking, you know what, I really don't think Arthur did this to himself. I need to know more. So he actually, with his brother's help, he sneaks into Arthur's apartment, looks around. There's cold glasses in the fridge. There's champagne ready. Like, there's just a a handful of evidential pieces around Arthur's apartment that makes it seem that Arthur was super excited because Anna was actually coming, this girl he met in the Midwest, and... Michael's realizing, hey, this is not the apartment of a man who's about to kill himself. This is the apartment of a man who's excited to see someone, which is basically the opposite. <laughs> yeah, and and then he he's being followed still by Vince, uh, by Vince and his little the crew hitman. of hitmen. And and that's is when they tell Karen that there's a problem because now Michael's snooping around and all this stuff. But it made me that the scene itself. I was like, you know, I love the person who cares more about truth 
than how they stand to lose from it because they because basically he's he'd be betraying arthur to not try and find out what happened to him this is how he doesn't betray arthur is to stick to it and again it's great because i don't think he would have done this if arthur hadn't challenged him like he did in that one moment a couple scenes previous on the street but he and he like he puts his brother out because there's another cop that this is his jurisdiction like he's making it tricky not just for himself but for his brother and then he even has to take that money like we said from marty so he's like feeling like he's betraying so in the apartment michael finds a receipt in the realm conquest book this is what's so great (laughs) michael finds the book uh realm conquest or whatever it is that henry told arthur to get and the bookmark in this book was a receipt to a print shop where michael finds out like a thousand of these memorandums have been made specifying that you north knowingly made this fertilizer that causes cancer so he brings it to marty he shows it to marty he says hey look you north they did this and that's when marty says how do you think we pay the bills this case was dirty from the start here's 80 grand go pay off your mob bills (laughs) and that's the other thing that you mentioned earlier Michael's a very imperfect human being, despite being so capable of uh, maintaining a sense of calm, which is very important for his job because he's always meeting with people who are in crisis. He's got this gambling addiction. He's in with the mob. He's got, obviously, he got divorced, so there's something going on there. He's not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. And yet he's like, you know, I've got these flaws, but I'm not going to stoop to this level of of letting someone that I've worked with for 17 years, these other guys I've worked with for 30 years, just die and nobody seems to care. And then he finds out the truth. And he's caught back in that web because now he owes, He's got this money, yeah. He owes 80 grand to his work, so he can't expose because his work still technically represents U North, so he's not going to re- expose the, his own client, basically, yeah, when, yeah. when he's just gotten 80 grand from his bosses to pay off the mob. Which is why he goes and gambles. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, I mean, basically, all that really is left in the movie now is after he goes up and sees in his car, he gets out and he goes to look at these horses in the country and his car blows up and he realizes why. Because they're, you North doesn't know that Michael had has a check for 80 grand from his work that he's not going to say anything now. So they still tried to kill him. And so he... Le- he leverages his reputation to take down Karen in New York, which I thought was pretty brilliant. Yeah. He convinces, he shakes down Karen by pretending to just be someone who she needs to bribe instead of kill. She agrees to it and he's recording all of it for his brother to arrest her. Cause basically they have her on tape admitting that she will pay him $10 million to go somewhere. That's the other thing that I I think is important about that scene is realizing the vulnerability that living lies and covering things up puts you in. Because what's this vulnerability now? Now Michael has blackmail material. He can can get something out of Karen. And Karen's in in a pretty weak position right now. Everything that she's built, her whole house of cards will come tumbling down if Michael just gets this memo out. So she's willing to give $10 million to this guy to shut up. Yeah. Because he's the last one who can expose them. And it ends up he stops being the bad guy, despite Mm -hmm. his whole description of himself as the bad guy to get her to say. It was so good because the the first time I watched this, the whole time I'm like, oh, he's going bad. 
Like he is the enemy. Yeah. And then at the end, he totally 180s, tells her she's so fucked, walks away. And then he says to her, I am Shiva, the god of death, which is funny because that's a line Arthur says to Michael during his manic monologue from the beginning of the movie. I am Shiva, the god of death. And so what I liked about all that too, about Michael's demeanor in general, is that basically with all this shit happening to him, the whole movie he's managed to mostly stay calm. And like his life is crumbling, again, like we said, for all the reasons, and now even worse, because he's had to accept money to basically let go of trying to figure out what happened to his friend, because Marty says, drop it, drop the Arthur thing. Why'd you go to his apartment kind of thing? So he's feeling like all of this, and then he and then he's the target of an assassination. So now your your personal safety. Yeah, personal threatened. safety. And he still manages to kind of keep this togetherness. His dialogue is tight. He doesn't he doesn't show his hand. He's managing to keep things on the up and up because I think he probably like I don't know. My interpretation is, man, he probably knows that no matter what's happening, it can get worse. Yeah. And honestly, like this is maybe going to sound a little cheesy, but I actually thought of this movie, when was it, like a week and a half ago, because I had to get my car towed twice in two days, and then I had a pretty expensive fix on it that I wasn't anticipating. And I feel like I honestly thought about this movie, (laughs) and I honestly thought about Michael Clayton and how he stayed so calm through this whole movie when actually way worse stuff was happening to him than was happening to me. And again, it's kind of stupid, but it made me not get as upset as I might otherwise or being like, well, you know what? Okay, there's a process. Sure, this is shitty, but call a tow truck. At least there's tow trucks. Get that to work. Communicate with mechanics. Okay, this is what I need. Oh, you don't have it. Okay, I got to go do this. Like, these are all stressful things for my real life. And yet, I thought of Michael Clayton. I was like, WWMCD. <laughs> what would Michael Clayton do, right? Uh, yeah. And and, and I managed to mostly stay calm. Not like I was hyperventilating. It's not that kind of scenario. But different than staying calm, I managed to not let this massive inconvenience in my life bring me down. I managed to stay on task. And, and like, this and movie it, was a big part of it. Put that. it into context, right? You were like, okay... There's nothing I can do about this situation besides fix it, so I'm going to fix it, which is kind of like the Michael Clayton model. <laughs> yeah, and so Karen goes to jail, presumably because of all this, and I mean, this is a desperate movie, and she does a pretty terrible thing, but I feel like were I to give her advice pre-Arthur death, it might be more like, okay, Karen, like, what do you think about the fact that your boss doesn't mind selling fertilizer that gives people cancer like i just she She never even seems to think about it she doesn't think about it but i just feel like i felt kind of bad for her in the sense that how how could she not have someone in her life who would be a kind of influence on her to make her think about those kind of things to ask her that kind of question yeah because that would be the very first question that would come to my mind (laughs) if i found out my boss had no problem selling a product that was known to give cancer without a warning. Oh, that would be my first question. (laughs) And she just doesn't, not only does she not ask that, which is unfortunate in itself, but she doesn't seem to have anyone around in her life that can help her kind of think like that. And I think it's super important. Obviously that's an extreme example, 
you know, if there's people around your life who can help nudge you or guide you or just kind of be an influence on you in a way that when bad things come up, you are asking the right questions as opposed to how to hide it. If Karen had tried to bring that into the light instead of shoving it further in the darkness, well, A, she wouldn't have gone to jail. I mean, she might have gotten arrested, but now she's in jail for, well, she's going to be in jail for murder and What's the legal term for bribery? Is it just bribery? I think bribery. Okay. <laughs> something, I don't know what the legal term is. <laughs> like, for that extent, anyway. Yeah. Which would have been a look harder in the moment. So Karen had a harder in the moment, better in the long run choice, and she chose the easier in the moment, harder in the long run choice. Yeah. yeah and That's I mean, a classic and mistake. She, <laughs> and she thought she was going to get away with it, right? She, she probably thought, I'll kill both these people and away we'll go. But obviously that, that didn't occur for her. And even if it had, even if she got away with it, that's on her for the rest of her life. That's on her conscience. And you can tell even in this movie, she does have a conscience. She's like freaking out about the, about putting this hit on Michael. Like, Yeah, it definitely is eating her up. But that makes it almost worse. It's Well, I don't know. I don't know if worse or better is the right term. But she, because it's so hard for her and she still chooses to do it, Oh, man, I'd almost... She's not a psychopath. No. <laughs> right? No. But it's almost easier to understand a really heinous act in a psychopath. You know, there's like a, a more clear understanding as like, how could you do this kind of thing? Whereas for her, being so not that, it's more confusing. Yeah. But she... I think it's that choice point I talked about earlier. You kind of end up being what you choose, right? Your choices end up being your identity. And her choice is to kill Arthur and to kill Michael and to not have this company be exposed or have even have her boss find out she's shown her values. And that's why she has to go to jail. Yeah. Like that's just not okay. (laughs) Like that's what she does is so deeply unethical because she chooses it with basically full information. And like, yeah, obviously she's not insane. She's not struggling with mental illness at this point. We At least we don't think so. She's literally choosing to do this purely for her own self-interest. She's essentially choosing her career over Arthur's life. Yeah. And then exactly. Michael's life. And Yeah. yeah. And th- that's how these things spiral is once you've done one of these oh, things. That's the end of the spiral. But I think like you have you kill one person and then, oh, someone else found out that I killed that person. Now I got to kill them. And that's that's where it gets problematic. Well, it <laughs> yeah. gets problematic before then. But. If we, to <laughs> exaggeratingly <laughs> euphemize. <Yeah. laughs> um, so anyway, I just have a couple final movie thoughts. Um, one of the things I love about this movie is that it really respects the audience's intelligence. So it doesn't hit you over the head with plot points. You really have to pay attention to the dialogue and to the mannerisms even of the characters to kind of understand what's happening. But if you do, it's very rewarding. And so, yeah, I feel very grateful for books slash movies slash anything that shows a deep respect for the intelligence of the consumer of that thing by not giving it to them on not a silver feeding plate. It too, uh, like, not yeah, like feeding them to like baby food, right? And then yeah. here's what's happening. And then, you know, this movie makes 
you, the audience member, work for it. You have to work to really understand everything that's happening in this movie. It's difficult to just view this movie and be like, like an entertainment. A casual it's would not, have no idea what's happening. No, and you get to the end, you'd be like, oh, that was a cool twist, and you probably wouldn't think about it much more. But it is very deep, and it's like Luke said at the beginning, every piece of dialogue, every scene has a, at least some connection to some other point in the film. Yeah, so there's this great scene early in the movie and then also again later in the movie from a different perspective where Michael is kind of just driving around upstate New York countryside and he pulls over and he gets out of his car and he kind of walks up a hill and we realize that he's only gone up this hill because there's a few horses kind of just standing around and he wants to go and look at them. And at the beginning of the movie, you're not really sure why he's doing this, but later you find out because when he's in Arthur's apartment, the Realm and Conquest book that Henry suggested that Arthur buy, he opens it and the page where the receipt is, which is the at the bookmark, which is the receipt for the print shop that has printed all these memorandums on them, is also on that page there's a picture of kind of a horse like up a hill on a mis you know, like a misty day, which is like what is actually happening to Michael in this scene where he's like it's a misty morning. He's driving around in the country and he sees like these horses and up he's on like, the hill. This is just weird. So like, it's a weird coincidence, yeah. but I liked it too because in this sense, you know how earlier Michael had given this great little said this great thing to Henry, his son. And this is like indirectly, of course, indirectly Henry saves his dad <laughs> because he actually looks at the book that Henry's been begging him to look at yeah, for so, all this time. Yeah, so Michael sees the book in Arthur's apartment that Henry has suggested his dad read, but his dad didn't. But because Arthur listened to Henry and got the book, and then, you know, these are all coincidences that are convenient to the plot. But again, I would actually forgive this movie for any of these plot conveniences because of how tight it is mm-hmm. and how great mm-hmm. it is. Michael gets out of his car here right when he gets blown up. That's convenient. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter because... This movie earns its convenient plot points, for sure. And so I just love that idea. Like, Henry indirectly saves his dad, saves him because a book Michael didn't have from the start, but Arthur did. I just like, you know, this is kind of beautiful. (laughs) Like, this is a beautiful way to do it. Yeah, that's actually one that I missed. I didn't remember the horse being on the hill. I was still like, it just seemed like this mystical, why is he going up and seeing these horses? But you're right. It's right, that picture that he's probably thinking of in that moment. When there's been so many coincidences kind of connected to this book, too. Well, because in a sense, like a metaphorical sense, Michael saves Henry in the sense that he tells him how much worth he has and how worthwhile he is and how true his heart is. And to really make a nice resolution to the story, because of that book, indirectly, Henry saves Michael. Yeah, exactly. And beautifully, again, just so, so beautifully, when all of this is happening and his car blows up, but Michael's outside looking at the horses, he throws his wallet in, he throws his keys, he throws everything in and runs away. And who does he call? Uncle Tim. <laughs> the the prodigal brother, yeah. right? The brother that can't do anything right helps Michael in the end. And thanks, Michael, for giving for, him the chance to help. Exactly. And so <laughs> through all of this, Michael gets to bring a lost brother back into the fold. And I thought that was like, oh, man, great. Give give him another shot, you know? Hopefully, <laughs> in the future, they can work out their issue. But it was tight narratively and was like a really beautiful, well-written, welcome back, prodigal brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was well done. So anyway, that's all I have for Michael Clayton. Final thoughts? I think... 
when we're looking at people, we sh- we need to remember whatever their flaws might be. Michael looking at Tim, or people looking at Michael with with his uh, gambling addiction. Remember, to I think what what this movie pulls out is the strength of Michael, and remember the strength that these people have and how their circumstances have shaped them to be capable of doing good when given the choice and being challenged like Arthur challenges Michael and says, well, then who are you? Who are you? That is the most essential question you can ask yourself in life. Who are you? So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, it was a great movie. Still one of my favorites. Very rewatchable because of how well made it is. With Michael, I'm so impressed with his kind of calmness. It's like a great meditation on how getting upset just makes whatever job you have to do harder and going to take longer. Karen, I don't know. She just needed someone. She just needed someone she didn't have uh, or needed a part of herself that she didn't have. And I thought that was really sad. Arthur, great. Maybe a piece of advice for Arthur is actually tell someone instead of making a grand gesture and then only telling the people who will want to kill you for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, but again... That question, I'm not the enemy, well then who are you? Not a bad question to um, think about all the time. I'm not the enemy, prove it. Who are you? And again, not in any specific scenario, just as like a positive contribution to life. How to not be the enemy on any given day. At a lesser degree, I'm reminded of that great line from Plato where he says, be kind to strangers for theirs is a hard path too. Don't make it harder, uh, and don't be that enemy. Don't don't be Karen. Yeah, don't be Karen. Um, anyway, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, I'm Luke Mason, and I'm David Parker. <laughs> See you later. Bye.